1: I'd like you now to meet my first guest this evening. They're a new rock band who are just about to start a big world tour. Will you welcome them to their first television appearance? Ladies and gentlemen, the Doctors of Madness. Uh.
2: Doctors of Madness story begins in South London in the mid-60s, when a teenage disciple of Dylan and Ginsberg, who called himself Richard Strange, decided that rock and roll presented an appropriate outlet for his poetic ambitions. He began as a folky, along with his friend Roy Harper. Then came Bowie, and Strange knew what he had to do. Ziggy Stardust had red-orange hair, so Strange went up a level blue hair with green sideburns, six foot four and lanky, he stood out in a crowd. A quote from Richard Strange, I was coming more from an art school direction, so I loved a lot of things about music that weren't necessarily the music itself. I liked the references, and it was those that attracted me to certain bands. Anyway, at one point I was supposed to be going to Norwich University, but my father wouldn't agree to it, so I thought, What was the most offensive thing I could do to spite him? And I decided to get a guitar. As things turned out, I ended up having a gap year, even though I wouldn't be going to university at the end of it. So I bought a guitar and went off to Copenhagen. I slowly picked up some tunes and stumbled through some chords until three years later, I started to work with a couple of other musicians. It was more or less a folky kind of thing because I'd always loved the English folk scene, people like Roy Harper, Bert Janch, and Sandy Denny. Again, it was more to do with the lyrics and the passion of it, and quite often the politics of it. It's one of the things people don't understand about the folk scene back then, that it involved a great deal of protest songs and was actually quite radical. Another quote from Richard Strange, I was singing about urban psychosis, control systems, paranoia, drugs, all with this Barozian subtext of a dysfunctional dystopian society where everything's on the point of breakdown. By 1974, Richard Strange had formed a band, Doctors of Madness. The name came from William S. Burroughs, specifically Dr. Benway, a recurring character whom Strange describes as a total charlatan who masquerades as a doctor purely and simply to get his hands on drugs. As often as not, he'll be pocketing the codeine or cocaine while massaging the patient's heart with a toilet plunger. Another quote from Richard Strange, I had been at school with Pete, our drummer. The bass player, Stoner, actually lived just down the road from me. He was always a bit of a muso, so I never thought he'd join a band with me because I was still so rudimentary and totally uninterested in musical complexity. I just wanted something that was straight up. But Pete and I had already gone through two or three other bass players who didn't work out when Stoner said one day, Why don't I have a go? I wasn't expecting this, but when he did join, it brought a lot of musicality to what we were doing, and he could also sing very nice backup vocals. So we now had a really good trio and started looking for another guitarist. We tried out a few people, including Ray Majors from Mata Hoople and Victor Unit from the Edgar Broughton Band. We also tried out a couple of synth players, but nothing was really working for us until we saw a Melody Maker ad by Urban Blitz. Quote, Violinist Guitarist Seeks Band. We invited him along to a rehearsal at this cellar we used in Brixton. He played his violin through all these pedals and I immediately decided, this is the kind of racket I like. He could play the quasi-classical stuff, but he also enjoyed making a racket, which was what I really wanted. Urban was classically trained, but he also listened to quite a lot of jazz. People like Stephane Grappelli and Jean-Luc Ponty. So the idea of electronic violins and what they could be used for wasn't strange to him. He'd actually built his own instruments as well, something called the Baritone Violectra, which was a weird sort of skeletal violin shape, but its pitch was slightly lower than a viola, and by putting it through various effects pedals, he could get a whole different tone palette from it. We all encourage that. Another quote from Richard Strange, You had a German fashion model, an English literature student, a drummer who had never played drums before, and a Welsh guy who was in New York studying classical composition. From the outside, you'd think, how could they possibly put something good together?
3: up His lashing, well, that's written in the rouge on his face. And Nancy's moved in with the baby, and Hopper's moving out of town. He's a funky friend, she's a pretty young lady, but they just each other down
2: band had an attitude and a sound that defied the norms of 70s rock, infusing their songs with an underground sensibility inherited from Burroughs, Ginsberg, and Warhol. A quote from Richard Strange, I think, if anything, it was an idea I took from a Brian Aldiss novel. One of the characters was called Kid Death, who I think was the anti-hero of the story. I just thought it sounded good, especially as, at the time, Everyone seemed to have names like Cliff Richard or Mick Jagger. I also thought it was interesting for all of us, and not just one person, to have aliases. I don't think anyone had done that before, or at least I can't think of anyone else. So we came up with Urban Blitz, Kid Strange, Pete Dilemma, and Stoner. Then we adopted things like the blue hair, weird contact lenses which would look quite unsettling... Ripped t-shirts and zip-up jeans, badges and stuff. We were a ragbag, really. We looked as if we'd got dressed in the dark.
3: Scenes. by the end of the night' I'll be down on my knees all the All right
2: Each member of the Doctors of Madness adopted a comic book style name. Richard Strange became Kid Strange. Their electric violinist called himself Urban Blitz. The bassist called himself Stoner and their drummer called himself Peter Dilemma. The sound that the four worked up alternated between a harsh, high-energy roar propelled by Blitz's John Cale-like screech and ramshackle epics keening with desolate violin melody. Because they sounded like nothing else on the circuit in 1975, Doctors of Madness initially had to book their own gigs. At the fourth of a series of shows at a Twickenham pub, during which attendance doubled each week through word of mouth, not one but two high-profile managers approached the group. Strange had only just turned down Jonathan King when industry bigwig Brian Morrison walked into their dressing room. Or rather, his cigar came in first, says Strange. He said, ''I could make you boys into stars. Come into my office on Monday.''
4: So when I started my band, Doctors of Madness, in 1974, by 1975, we were sort of looking to play live. My girlfriend at the time was a a student at Twickenham Art School. And in Twickenham, there was a a pub called The Winning Post, uh, just near the art school. And the students used to drink there. But at the weekends, it was dead. But they had an upstairs music room. So I rather... um, boldly went in and spoke to the uh, landlord there on a Saturday evening and it was dead as a dodo Uh, and I said to him, uh, do you have live music here still? He said, well we used to but it didn't really work, you know, we're set up for it but um, I don't book anyone at the moment and there were about three people in there. Um, So I said to him rather grandly, how would you feel about me taking the place for six consecutive Saturdays? doing all the promotion. And uh, I said to him, only half jokingly, I could double the number of people in here. You know, he had three people, so I was on fairly safe ground there. So he said, "Right, well, let's give it a go. So these were the days before internet, before uh, social media. So everything was done analog. It was done with flyers, with posters, with word of mouth, maybe a little if we were really flush a little ad in Time Out, or in one of the music papers. Uh, and a lot of phone calls to friends saying, uh, well, we're doing this gig. And it was a big thing for us to be doing a gig, was, was, was big, because we were a brand new band. So we did that first night, and um, we probably had 10, 12 people came. The following week, 20 people came. The following week, 40 people came. And by the end of our run, we had 150 people in and it was that word of mouth thing. We were a new band, we weren't especially good, but we were different, we were different and we had a, uh, uh, an attitude. Um, and so, that last night, we did a gig that sort of defined what we wanted to be. It was, it was really dynamic, it was exciting it was born of all the frustration of not having a manager, not having a record contract, not having a van, not having equipment to speak of, not having an agent, not having a publisher. And at the end of that gig, the crowd had gone mad. We were having a little drink in our, I call it a dressing room, it's giving it uh, a little bit too much uh, um, prestige, but uh, we were in a sort of broom cupboard. that was our dressing room. And there was a knock on the door. And uh, a guy came in who looked slightly familiar, and he said, my name's Jonathan King, right? He said, um, I don't know if you've heard of me, and i had heard of Jonathan King. This was before his troubles, it must be said, but I didn't like him. As a person, I didn't like him in- instinctively. And even more importantly, I didn't like his band Genesis, who he was managing at the time. So he came in and we had a cursory chat and he said, are you guys looking to turn professional? And I said, yeah, we are. He said, well, I manage a band called Genesis. And I think, hmm, that rules you out then, you know. Uh, anyway, he, he stayed a little while and uh, I sort of um, said thanks, but no thanks. And as, as he left, the band looked at me and said, you know, have you completely lost your marbles, I Said you know. That was our one chance we might ever have to turn professional. And he managed his Genesis. I said, I hate Genesis. Not interested. And they were livid, you know. So. Five minutes later, like waiting for buses, there's another knock on the door. And this time a cigar comes in about five minutes before the guy's smoking it. It's like, and he's a classic East End wide boy manager, pop manager. He introduced himself as Brian Morrison. He said, I was Brian Morrison. I managed Pink Floyd, I managed T Rex, I published T Rex and the Bee Gees. And, um, I made so much money, he said, I retired. But a mate of mine came and saw you last week uh, and said, if I wanted to get back into the business, come and see this band because I might get excited by it. He's puffing away. He said, I was quite excited. You know, He didn't, never wanted to do a. Uh, diminish his negotiating position, you yeah. know. He said, if you guys are serious, come and see me in my office on Monday and we'll talk contracts. So we did, we went up to Mayfair and there on the wall, the gold discs for Pink Floyd, T-Rex, Bee Gees and stuff. And sure enough, he's got a publishing contract. He used to be an agent, but in the sixties, he started music publishing. And that's where he made it his considerable wealth. And he brought out the contracts and it says, sign here, sign here, sign here, sign here. So we signed management, we signed record production deal, we signed publishing, I think we signed agency as well. You know, by the end of that afternoon, I'd probably signed away 182% of my potential earnings for the rest of my life. But I was a professional musician as I left that office.
3: And we on I see Dollar the gang, the the steps, disciples, religious,
2: quote from Richard Strange. We had the perennial problem that every new band encounters. How do you get gigs when no one knows you? And how do people get to know you if you aren't playing gigs? So I did what I'd pretty much done all my life and took it in my own hands to set up our own gigs. My girlfriend at the time was at Tookenham Art College, and she told me that there was a pub near the college called Cabbage Patch, which had a function room above the bar. It was hardly ever used, so I asked the landlord if we could play there for four consecutive Saturdays. He asked what sort of music we played, so I lied and told him cover versions or something. But I also told him rather grandly that we'd probably have 50 people there each night, although I really didn't know if we could, but he agreed to let us use it. This was obviously a long time before the internet and social media, so we had to hand out flyers, put posters up, make telephone calls, maybe even got the details in Time Out or Melody Maker. So it was totally self-promoted. I think the first night maybe 20 people came, but the next weekend there was 50, and the following week there was 100. By the final weekend it was absolutely rammed. It was a really extraordinary show, because we'd been having a lot of frustration about not having a manager, not having good equipment, not having a van, all those kind of things. But everything coalesced for that one hour we were on stage and it was great. Afterwards, two people who were in the audience came backstage to see us. The first one was Jonathan King, of all people. I only knew who he was because he had managed Genesis, who I hated. So when he offered to manage us, I told him to fuck off. As it turns out, his connections with Genesis would probably have been the least of our worries. But just as the rest of the band started remonstrating and saying I must be crazy to turn him down, there was another knock at the door, and it turned out to be this guy called Brian Morrison. He'd originally been at St. Martin's Art School, but had gone on to manage the pretty things and publish bands like Pink Floyd and T-Rex. He'd actually retired by then and was running a gallery, but he was bored with it and wanted to get back into the music business. Someone had seen us the previous week and told him he should see us. So he said, if we were serious about it, we should come to his office on Monday and we could talk about a deal. We went along to his office in Mayfair, which had all of these gold discs on the wall. He gave us champagne and we promptly signed all the documents. Morrison and his partner Justin DeVelenu were classic London showbiz hustlers, flashy and flamboyant. After financing six weeks of rehearsal time so the Doctors of Madness could develop their stage act, the duo of managers threw a massive launch party even before a record deal was signed. Formerly Twiggy's manager, DeVelenu had an address book crammed with A-listers. All of them received invitations to this big bash at Ladbrokes Casino in Mayfair, where they sip champagne while listening to the doctor's tumultuous racket. A quote from Urban Blitz, That evening we rubbed shoulders with the glitterati of international film and stage. Peter Sellers, Sophia Loren, Omar Sharif, John Mills, Justin was upset because Warren Beatty didn't turn up. Dave who also wrangled the group onto Twiggy's BBC variety show. Hidden behind a fog created by dry ice, Richard Strange duetted with Twiggy on the song Perfect Past.
1: Make your dreams the perfect past Perfect scene To never last Watch those scenes That move so fast Long lost friends To break your heart
2: Quote from Richard Strange, His first decision was that he was going to put us into a rehearsal room for the next six or eight weeks, and we would do six days a week there, 12 hours a day, working on our writing, our arrangements, and production ideas. We did that, and at the end of the six weeks, he started to bring in CEOs from all the big record companies, as he was already very well connected. Eventually, Polydor offered him the best money for a three-album deal and we went into the studio almost straight away. We were still playing gigs as well and were given the support slot on a tour with Bebop Deluxe, who were EMI's Great White Hope at the time. We played some pretty big gigs with them and totally polarized the audience. Some people absolutely hated us with an all-consuming passion, while others thought we were the best thing they'd ever seen. Straight after that, our first album Late-night movies, all-night brainstorms came out and inevitably got mixed reviews. When we made it, we more or less went in, played it live, and then patched it up. But I remember we came up with this phrase, Cathedrals of Sound. We wanted to make these huge, cinematographic soundtracks, if you like. Sometimes they'd have a lot of space in them. Other times they'd be so dense that it would sound like a juggernaut going down the street. We'd have a mix between the three-minute thrash of waiting or B-movie Bedtime, through to the rather elaborate, multi-movement tracks like Mainlines. We tried to involve a lot of texture, a lot of mood, a lot of space, and a lot of drama. I suppose we were borrowing from prog rock in some ways, but never trying to achieve what prog rock had become. We were more interested in using the long songs as a large canvas rather than trying to reduce everything to a miniature, which is what punk rock attempted. We decided to make the most of the violin and the bass player, and because those songs more or less called for a soundtrack to support them, we really indulged ourselves. A quote from Richard Strange, We were still incredibly naive at the time. If you were to ask me now if there were things I'd change about it, of course there are. I think it sounds a little bit thin at times, which was down to our inexperience rather than anything else although I think that happens with lots of bands when they first go into the studio. A quote from Richard Strange, We came straight off the Bebop Deluxe tour, the album was released, and we went back out on our own tour. This was still in early 1976, and we were getting crowds of 600 or 800 people wherever we went. We played a lot of the provincial towns in the Northeast, Northwest, down in the West Country, and in the Midlands. There was a really solid circuit of places to play back then, either local clubs or at universities or colleges. The student union places were always incredibly fertile to play because they tended to sell cheaper tickets and also had cheap bars. So we were starting to do really well, which was when I got a call from our agent, Martin Hopewell, saying he was getting pestered by a guy in London who had a band and they wanted to play some gigs with us outside of London. He told me they were called the Sex Pistols and warned me that they already had a bit of a bad reputation, but I had already heard about them and they sounded like fun so we agreed that they could play with us at a gig in Middlesbrough. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? On the day of the gig, we arrived at the venue and they were already there, trying to be obnoxious to everyone, just as you'd expect. They continued being pests as we did our sound check, and then, when it was their turn, they asked if they could borrow our equipment. Well, we'd already heard that if they didn't just nick your gear, they'd bust it. So we were a bit reluctant, but ended up lending them a couple of things. Anyway, they did their sound check and it just seemed to be a god awful racket. But it was also one of those gigs where they finished their sound check, five minutes later the doors opened, and ten minutes later they were back on stage to play. I was watching them from the side of the stage, and once I saw the reaction they created, I just realized it's all over for us. You know, we'd just released our first album and thought we had it all planned out. By the way, things had been going, we thought that by the time we released our third album, We were going to be on the same level as Pink Floyd and the Stones. But watching the Sex Pistols that night, I just thought, it's all over. It was as if someone had moved the goalposts. I didn't really understand it at the time, but a generation in pop music terms is only about two or three years. If you have brothers or sisters that are two or three years older than you, then there's a fair chance that you'll be listening to similar types of music. But if they're four or five years older, forget it. This is the place
3: The lads come to die This is the crossroads It's such a
2: to stir up some interest from American record companies and win a lucrative contract, Morrison persuaded NBC to make a fly-on-the-wall documentary about a rock band's rise to stardom. The crew lived in our pockets for two weeks. They came on tour into the recording studio to management meetings, recalls Strange. They were incredibly charming and plausible, but when the show aired, the footage had been edited into a quote, total hatchet job about this manufactured band with no live pedigree being hyped by a pair of industry hustlers. So that scuppered our American ambitions. Doctors of Madness signed with Polydor in the UK and Europe, a handsome three album deal worth 150,000 pounds, more than 1 million pounds in today's money. During 1976, they played constantly, performing at ever larger halls. They also toured extensively, across Great Britain and continental Europe, France, Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, Switzerland, Denmark, Sweden. Their early stage shows, in which Strange appeared with dyed blue hair and stoner wore skeletal-style makeup, incorporated costumes, props, projected backdrop images, smoke, strobe lights, theatrical spotlighting, and taped sound effects. Stoner recalled that they had wanted to create a really outrageous image to match the songs Richard was writing. Strange called his songwriting cinematic, quote, where the images come in and out, not making much sense on a rational level, more on a sensory one. Very sleazy, underground, and outrageous. Doctors of Madness recorded their second album, Figments of Emancipation, at Abbey Road Studios with producer John Leckie. It was released in
3: 1976 The cover doesn't lie, it's only your guy. I will interpret it the shirt. It has no point of view, it's just like
2: quote from Richard Strange, the second album was made at Abbey Road with John Leckie and was a much more sure-footed album in a lot of ways. Songs like Suicide City, Mary and Joe, and Perfect Past were all a lot more confident. John knew the Abbey Road studios inside out, and I already knew him from when he had worked with Roy Harper, so we were happy to be working together. When it came out, it was a lot more accomplished and a lot more polished than the first album. It was a lot more sophisticated. It was a lot more sophisticated, I suppose, using the latest studio techniques and a lot of overdubs. But it came out just as punk rock was starting to explode, and suddenly, for the record companies, it was the only game in town. In a very short space of time, Polydor had signed The Jam, Susie and the Banshees, and Sham 69, so when Figments came out, we were being treated like a bad smell every time we walked into the Polydor offices. There were only one or two people who still supported us, like Chris Bone, who eventually went on to be the editor of The Wire. He was always into the weirder stuff. He loved Krautrock and was also in the burrows, so he got what we were trying to do. He was fighting in our corner, but the rest of them had moved on and just wanted to hang out with Susie and the Banshees or the Cure.
3: What politicians?
2: A quote from Richard Strange, it's very much a sound that's between two genres, a schizophrenic sound, sometimes tender, almost contemplative, and other times an amphetamine rush, like the song could barely wait to get to the end.
3: I've lost everything, so I guess that's nothing much. I'm so incredibly down, today nothing seems to go white. Just when I see so set off of the sky, you're the city, you see the light.
2: One thing that separated Doctors of Madness from the burgeoning punk scene was they had these two glitzy showbiz managers very different from the likes of Malcolm McLaren. The Sex Pistols did open for them in Middlesbrough in 1976, and The Jam opened for them at the London Marquee on several occasions. Joy Division, when they were still called Warsaw, also opened for Doctors of Madness in Manchester in 1976, and the very early version of Simple Minds, then called Johnny and the Self-Abusers, also opened for Doctors of Madness in Falkirk in 1976. In 1977, Richard Strange was the best man at the wedding of the singer for The Damned, Dave Vanian. So the band did have a lot of connections to punk rock, but in the history books of the genre, they're kind of forgotten. Polydor had shifted all of its energy to signing new wave acts, and Doctors of Madness were yesterday's news. They made one more album, Sons of Survival, recorded at Abbey Road with a tiny budget, They did try to punk up their sound and style, but it was too little, too late.
3: In, it's the news and 10 again Another bulletin, another bulletin From the guys again You're so much to talk about Sudden noise of breaking bullet of custody Another level falling down the stairs again Funny how these guys are all so falling out of the floor, And it's funny all the things I've supposed to never show Another bulletin, another bulletin It's the news at 10 again Another bullet in, another bullet
2: in for the guys A quote from Richard Strange. By the time we'd started work on Sons of Survival, we already sensed that it was over for us and didn't really know what we were going to do next. I was 26 years old, I'd had a moderate career as a musician but nowhere near the kind of success that you could live on once the band ended. We still made the third album, and it came out, but then Urban Blitz decided to leave the band. I think he just saw the writing on the wall. Urban Blitz left the band in early 1978, immediately after the release of the album. He was briefly replaced by Dave Vanian, whose band The Damned had temporarily split up. Vanian didn't last long, and the band continued on as a trio, shortening their name to The Doctors, trying to fit in with the punk rock new wave scene. It didn't work, and they broke up at the end of 1978, when the record company withdrew support. The Doctors of Madness played their final gig at the Music Machine in Camden, North London, on the 26th of October, 1978.
3: Time. It's suddenly clear he's controlled by the old boys, Conditioned to think that to find them they stopped sort all of crime They live in glass cases with golden and faces They're dwelling in places No trace of the high rise for these guys And the kids on the streets are preparing for takeover time and there on the wall in words, if we told them to and you all to join parties and watch the TV. And up in the sky is a vision of mercy, but it might just as well be a fortnight in Jersey for me. I'm so unconvinced by your saviors and princes, and since we got started, your bleeding hot love leaves me cold. Of a century too soon Or a lifetime too old All right, I've said nothing new Just no words like a slightly new way That's right, I'm exactly like you I'm hung up wondering how We could make it today
2: But Richard Strange wasn't done with the music business. He developed a solo act using backing tapes and slide projections to stage a performance piece titled The Phenomenal Rise of Richard Strange. Quote, It was my political fantasy of a glamorous but cynical character using what he's learned in showbiz and advertising to become president of a united Europe. Rather than money or even power, the character is quote, interested in doing it for the game as a conceptual exercise almost.
3: Walk a straight line To the landslide The walls with sticks and decide who you are, the slave or master. Watch the race, it's getting faster. Walk a straight line, the road to ruin. You either end up screwed or screwing. Change the time, it's time for change. Europe welcomes Richard Strain.
2: from Richard Strange I had to think what was I going to do now? I had to reflect and decide what am I good at? What are my strengths and weaknesses? I realized that I was good at conceptualizing projects so after a while I started writing an album that was sort of political fantasy called The Phenomenal Rise of Richard Strange. I projected it into an imaginary near future where Europe had become a federation and there was now a president of Europe. This person had abused his position in show business and advertising to maneuver his way into that role, almost as a game or a challenge, rather than a thirst or lust for power. I wrote a whole suite of songs and it became a kind of concept album, so then I had to decide how I wanted to perform it. I didn't really want to take a band out on the road and I couldn't afford to anyway. I didn't want to play in regular rock clubs because I'd already done that, so I chose to work with tape recorders and slide projectors. Super 8 film and things like that. I ended up performing it as a one-man show and making it quite theatrical. A quote from Richard Strange, Everyone I knew seemed to want to be an actor, but I didn't. It was completely fortuitous that I met someone who had been working with a friend of mine, and she had just started a new job as an assistant to Frank Rodham, the movie producer. She introduced me to him, and he said that I needed to get an agent. He said that I had an interesting face and I had a good voice, so I'd always be able to get work. He introduced me to an agent and I've been with them ever since. I didn't work on the film that Frank was working on at the time, but I did go on to work on Mona Lisa, Batman, Robin Hood, Gangs of New York, and even Harry Potter. I've just been incredibly lucky to work on some very big movies. I've worked with Tim Burton, Jack Nicholson, Harmony Corinne, and Martin Scorsese. Some very brilliant people so I've been very lucky. Richard Strange published a memoir entitled Strange, Punks and Drunks and Flicks and Kicks in 2005. In 2019, a fourth Doctors of Madness album, Dark Times, was released. One song featured Joe Elliott from Def Leppard on backing vocals. The album Strange co-wrote with T.V. Smith, entitled 1978, was released in 2021. A quote from Richard, There was actually a whole album that we wrote together which sadly never came out, although I still love the demos for it. We recorded about 8 or 9 songs at my house over a period of about 2 years, in about 78 to 79, I think. No drums, just 2 guitars and 2 voices. We'd started writing together when Doctors of Madness were beginning to fall apart, and I think the same thing was beginning to happen with the adverts. So we did this as a kind of a side project. It was just something for us to do, and I think the songs were really good, even though the recordings were pretty terrible. I'm a big fan of TV's music, so it was great to play with him. He's the real deal. He's got his own style. He's an engaging performer and has a real integrity.
3: We're walking in formation. We never rest.
0: We're making the
3: Each step creates the next. We're
0: making the
3: This is virgin land.
0: Good men think they're born with wings. Good men think they can do anything. We're making the We're making the
4: We're making Making machines. No, I can't. I can't. I enjoy what I do too much. What would I do? Play golf or something? No, not. <laughs> certainly not. I love what I do. I am absolutely blessed. Um, I don't. Say that with any false modesty. I'm, I'm incredibly lucky.